1: Hello, I'm Scott Sashen. I'm
2: Evan Novi williams and this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports.
1: Michael Barr is on vacation this week, enjoying Hershey, Pennsylvania. Say hello if you happen to see him. So we will do all the heavy lifting today, beginning with the Dallas Cowboys running into tax implications as they go more for their players. As they go all the way to California for training camp, Mr. Novi Williams.
2: Yeah, so one of two NFL teams that, that do their training camp, not in the state where they play. And the Cowboys travel far. They go to Oxnard, California, you know, the kind of thing that gets them away from, you know, their the, the distractions of their family and their home life. Um, but And spreads spreads the, the
1: gospel of all things cowboys. Absolutely,
2: yeah, which is which is helpful. Put some money in, in Jerry Jones' pocket. However, the, uh, the tax rates are a little different in, in Texas and, <laughs> and, and California. And because Cowboys players are spending so much time there, I think it's 19, 20 working days in California before coming back to to, to Texas. Uh, that's a tax bill that, that, that adds up.
1: So if you're a Cowboys player, you're probably saying to Jerry, hey, I know you maybe didn't <laughs> think about this, but we're getting hit. Some cases, some of the higher paid players, hundreds of thousands of dollars. In California taxes, whereas if they stayed home in Texas, that's a no state tax state.
2: Yeah, so here are some numbers crunched by Forbes Amari Cooper, star wide receiver, $158,000. He's going to owe in, in in taxes to California because of this move. Tyrone Smith, the Cowboys' highest paid player, offensive lineman, one hundred seventy seven thousand dollars. Tyrone
1: Smith is this the Cowboys' is highest paid player. Offensive, you got to protect yeah, Dak I, Prescott. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, so so you're right. These are you know one hundred fifty thousand dollars for a couple players. Um, you know, uh, probably over a hundred thousand for a few others. Uh, that's a that's a hefty bill right there.
1: Yeah, and there are some other players around the league. And one thing we're noticing is the Raiders are considering having their training camp now in Nevada also no state tax, mm-hmm. as opposed to, obviously, California. So their players are probably cheering, let's go somewhere else. We get to keep our money.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't know if you saw like, Quinn and Williams, the the Jets' first-round pick this year, number three you overall pick in the NFL You know I didn't see because you told draft. me about it. I said, I hadn't seen that. <laughs> he uh, he was holding out in his contract, and apparently the sticking point, he signed a $32 million deal with with $20 million guaranteed, but the team wanted to defer at least 30% of that guarantee to next year. And he was saying, no, I want the full guarantee now. And the reason he wanted it is that he lives in Alabama right now, and he's likely going to be living in New Jersey or New York next year. Both of those states have much higher taxes. So he wants, and smartly so, he wants to get all that guaranteed money now when he's paying the 5% you know, top income tax rate in Alabama before he moved to New Jersey where the top income is income tax is, is 10.75%.
1: And I can say that's true as a resident of New Jersey. And by the way, if he had taken the money for next year, he'll be in a higher tax bracket.
2: So. Yeah. So all those things. And, and he said it outright at his press conference this week. You know, he you know, th- this was a discussion that he had because of the tax implications of where he was living at the time versus where he would be moving.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: All right, let's talk about friend of the show, Paul Rabel. I called him years ago in one of the first articles. I called him the first million dollar lacrosse player. While well, he's losing a multi-million-dollar endorsement <laughs> deal, uh, pretty much right now it seems because he's an entrepreneur.
2: Yeah, this is a story that you broke, and and you know people who listen to the show are, are very familiar with what Paul is doing. He launched his own outdoor lacrosse league, a competitor to the MLL, kind of the entrenched. Uh, Major Major League Lacrosse, the, the entrenched outdoor lacrosse league that already existed, uh, certainly ruffled some feathers. I'm sure he expected that there was going to be potentially uh, some ramifications for him from a business standpoint. Um, and as you point out in the article, you know the, this company New Balance, which which cut him off. Yeah, and, he, has and some, here's the key to the some, whole story. some deep ties to that outdoor lacrosse league that he is now trying.
1: Yeah, uh, so to let's build spell it out for two. folks. Paul was playing in Major League Lacrosse, and he left to form the Premier Lacrosse League. One. Paul and his team had had negotiations to buy Major League Lacrosse. It did not happen. So then Paul went and started his own league with some backing, including Joe Ty um, and some other venture rain capital group, yeah. rain group. Yeah, Joe Ravitch and, and and Colin Neville, who's been on the show. Okay, that's step one. Step two: Jim Davis, the founder and chairman of New Balance, which is Paul's endorser. It's Warrior New Balance. They pay him. You know, Five years, multi-million dollars, that's the deal. Jim Davis previously, and we're talking within the last few months, owned four major league lacrosse franchises. And he is now down to one, partnering, by the way, on the one in Dallas with Jerry Jones. Hmm. That's just a coincidence to our previous topic. So he's gone from four to one, perhaps sensing that his investment in Major League Lacrosse is not the best in the world right now because of this competitor league. So they terminated Paul's contract, and I, I reviewed a copy of the letter because, they say, he violated the deal by wearing an Adidas shirt and Adidas socks during practice and in games. Adidas has the deal with the Premier Lacrosse League. And by the way, Kawhi Leonard, a New Balance athlete, wears a Nike jersey, When he plays an NBA game, there are other New Balance Warrior athletes in the Premier Lacrosse League who also wear the Adidas jersey, who did not lose their deals. Uh, And I should say, fairness, I did put in a call to Jim Davis and New Balance to find out the specifics of where they're coming from. I did not hear back. But again, just from the business of sports perspective, that it's all intertwined where one guy's interest in a league and he's got a company, but he's got to deal with a player. Complicated, yet pretty simple.
2: Yeah, we had Paul Rabel on the podcast a couple months ago, and we didn't ask him this directly, but I do wonder how how much he was expecting some blowback from the traditional lacrosse world. I mean, he's getting a lot of praise, obviously, for the stuff that he's doing, um, but if he was expecting there to be some professional ramifications for him by going out and starting this only kind of opposite
1: the MLL. My guess is having dealt with, MLL and negotiations to buy the league. And then, of course, having one guy with four franchises who also happens to be the owner of the company that you have your deal with. Probably not a huge surprise that there were some ramifications.
2: And MLL players wear New Balance jerseys, right?
1: They are are league sponsor. MLL are are, are league sponsor. Warrior and New Balance are both MLL sponsors. Gotcha. gotcha, So not a huge surprise. Let us finish up with a story that has been going on for quite some time. Still not over. U.S. Soccer's pay inequity. They came out with yet another argument as to why the uh, the women and men do not get paid the same. Uh, U.S. men's team came out and said, we don't care. We still think there should be gender equity. We don't agree with your, your mechanics of, of the finances. Evan, mediation's coming, so we're, we're going to have a resolution one way or another.
2: Yeah, the, I mean, U.S. Soccer essentially waited four months after the women made their lawsuit and laid out the financials as they interpreted them. U.S. soccer waited four months until after the World Cup to give their financial rebuttal. And it came this week, President Carlos Cordero publishing a letter and some research. Uh, they, you know, U.S. soccer claims that the U.S. women are paid more, more. overall. And, and the way they do that, kind of way they differ from from the U.S. women, just to lay it out for, for listeners, the U.S. women in their lawsuit said that if the two teams played 20 games, they won them all, The men would be paid about $266,000, and the women would be paid $99,000, right? So that's 38 cents on the dollar. That's where that number comes from that you're hearing a lot.
1: But By the way, we should also mention, though, that the women and men negotiated separate collective bargaining Mm -hmm. agreements, and they are not structured the same. Correct. These are duly negotiated agreements just with different principles.
2: Yeah. And then, so U.S. soccer took that same kind of approach, 20 games, let's say they win them all. Um, They added in the base salary, which the women get, which the men do not. They added money that U.S. soccer pays for the NWSL. So they're paying the club salary for a lot of these women on the U.S. national team. They added that in. They added kind of the benefits, the four hundred one k package, the 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 the, uh, the doctor health insurance, all that that a lot of the men and they don't. They tossed get. in the kitchen sink and and the and the game checks. Yeah, they put it all together and they're claiming doing that accounting that the women make three hundred seven thousand dollars and the men make two hundred sixty three thousand.
1: Now I saw the women fire back saying we don't agree this isn't right, but I didn't see a financial breakdown that came with it, which is sort. Of, I think it's sort of imperative that if you're going to counter the model, you need to break out how you dispute their findings.
2: Yeah, and I think it, it, a lot of people were, were latching onto the fact that U.S. soccer now is, is claiming the, the, this club stipend as part of the pay for the women's national team. Uh, all of this, as you said, is going to be hashed out in mediation, which is happening, I mean, at ASAP. I think I think any day now that this mediation is going to start. Um, and you mentioned it at the beginning, which is also fairly interesting, the, the U.S. men's national team, very quickly after the U.S. Soccer Support put out these the numbers. Women. Yeah, I mean, the, the statement is fairly damning. I'll read a piece of it right here. This is more of the same from a federation that is constantly in dispute and litigation and focusing on focuses on increasing revenue and profits without any idea of how to use that money to grow the well, sport. Well, you know
1: why? Because the men's team contract has expired. Yeah. So they're saying that they find it funny that U.S. Soccer is disclosing all of these financials and discussing the women's pay issue when they haven't even focused on the negotiation for a new contract on the men. Yeah. So.
2: so in the next couple of years, the men first and then the women, there's going to be two CBA negotiations within U.S. soccer. Um, and I would imagine them both to be uh, to be quite interesting negotiations moving forward.
1: As one of the first things I ever did in this business was cover the 1998-99 men's NBA lockout. Hmm. I, I mean, I know people probably hate all that stuff, but I found it absolutely fascinating to have the personalities of David Stern on one side and Billy Hunter on the other side, and David Falk in the middle, and, and these hundred million dollar contracts of Jordan Ewing, Mourning, and and the disparate uh, interests and wants of the megastars versus the rank and file. Uh, I find this stuff totally interesting. gives a good window into the sports business world at large.
2: Totally, I agree. I mean, when I started at Bloomberg, was kind of right in the middle of that NFL, the the, the bad 2010. NFL negotiation as well. And yeah, you learn a lot about how, you know, how revenue comes in for sports, how it gets divvied up, who has the power within it. And and I and I imagine here, you know, the power may be shifting a little bit from U.S. soccer over to to the players themselves, at least in the court of public opinion.
1: We're seeing that in lots of sports. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Scott Soschnick, along with Eben Novi williams
2: We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week when we speak with Howard Mittman, CEO of Bleacher Report.
1: Really good discussion. Uh, You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio Around the World, online, wherever you get your podcasts.